Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Few Choice Words podcast. I'm Chantelle Davison, and I am your host, and I am joined today by the wonderful Nicola Rowley, who is here to talk all about PR, for entrepreneurs specifically. But we're also, because this is the Few Choice Words podcast, we're also going to be delving into some of the nitty-gritty about the slightly less glamorous side of entrepreneurship, life, and all of the blurred lines between the two, which we know exist as entrepreneurs. So hello, Nicola. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Chantelle. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's dive straight into the nitty gritty and kick off with who you are, what you do and who you help, just so everyone knows who we're talking to and what you're here to talk about today. Um, so my name is Nicola Rowley and I specialise in helping entrepreneurs get visible, harnessing the power of PR through strategic storytelling. I run my own uh, communications agency called NJRPR and basically help brands and entrepreneurs get that visibility, which is so key right now, being able to be seen, be heard and just be more visible. Okay. Why do you think that's so important right now specifically? Oh gosh, it's everything right now. Like being seen, um, being visible is absolutely everything. We know that we're heading into a recession if we're not already there. They haven't officially said we are and underlined it, but we're heading that way. And what tends to happen in a recession is that businesses either retreat or they go all in and they invest in their future selves. And the ones that invest in their future selves and are seen and heard and keep talking to their potential customers, they're the ones that survive. It's a kind of, you're in a situation right now where you have a choice. You either thrive and survive or you retreat and say, we're just gonna cut costs and we're not gonna be seen quite as much. It's a very dangerous game to play right now. So if you want to give your business some rocket fuel, the best way to do it is by using PR because PR allows you to harness being able to reach a much bigger audience, to be able to get that credibility that you can only get through PR by having that third party endorsement of what it is that you do or being seen in different publications or heard on different podcasts. And um, there's so much to it and you just can't afford to be hiding. Definitely not in the current climate. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who are listening, um, I, we have a business and a, a non-business audience who listen to this. So I'd love to cover just in brief what the difference is between PR and marketing. Because I think there'll be some people who are uncertain on that distinction. Yeah, so PR is very much part of the marketing mix. So all of the different types of marketing, whether that's email marketing, whether that's taking out adverts in magazines or publications or sponsoring different podcasts or whatever it may be, PR is part of that marketing mix. But where it stands by itself is it actually looks after your reputation. So it looks after your reputation as a business owner, as an individual, but it also looks after that reputation as a brand. And a really key part of PR is understanding and really nailing your messaging. So you know who it is you're trying to reach and doing it in an as effective way as possible to be able to reach them. And then the other thing that PR enables you to do 
is just be able to go out there. So you've got the reach, you've got the um, the fact that you can have that credibility where journalists are actually saying, this person is an expert in the field. This person is the person that we're gonna focus on. This person has a great story. And what PR enables you to do much more than any other form of marketing is allow you to have that emotional connection with your audience. Now, when you think about when you're doing anything in life, people buy from people. And the reason that I talk about storytelling so much is because think about the last time you went to a dinner party. When you came away from that dinner party, the things that you remember the most were the anecdotes that were told at that dinner party, the things that people had like really fun, like ways to actually tell. It's those stories that stick with us. And those are what enable you to resonate the most with your audience, with your friends, with your family. It's so important that you wrap everything up in a story. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more as a copywriter. There's a lot of crossover between, um, you know, between PR and copywriting in that sense, because as you say, the, the most impactful way to create connection, to create that like, no trust factor that we all know we need with clients is to tell stories, is to invite them into stories they want to be part of. So there's, there's a huge crossover between PR and copywriting in that sense. One thing you've mentioned that I'd love to pick up on, because I think this is a particular sticking point for a lot of people when it comes to PR, is you mentioned that PR protects your reputation. I think a lot of people have a view of PR that it almost can do the opposite, which is that actually, you know, with um, kind of clickbait and splashing stories all over things like, you know, <laughs> like um, The Sun and Hello Magazine, all this kind of stuff, that maybe there's an adverse effect to publicity and to PR. So how do you, when you're working with clients, how do you manage that to make sure that not only is the PR good for their business, but actually feels good for them too? I think what it comes down to is actually having a plan in place. I think a lot of people, when they're first thinking about PR, they may well go on to say Twitter and look at a hashtag journal request and go, right, okay. Um, I'm going to respond to five different like requests today and they haven't thought it through and they haven't thought about what their messaging is what what's the outcome that they want from that and once you start doing that work once you've worked out what your story is it, that is like the foundation for all PR work out what your story is then work out what your messaging is work out what you want the outcome for any interview to be and then understand where your ideal clients are hanging out. So you're not just doing this spray and pray and hoping that you're going to be able to make something land and then that will work because it won't. It's very much a strategic long-term game. PR is not a quick fix by any like shape of the imagination. You have to be able to look at it as a longer-term thing and then once you've got your messaging once you understand the angles from your stories that will appeal to journalists you are so much further down the line you're not going to end up being featured in a an article that's splashed all over the place now it would be unfortunate if that was to happen but again that is where someone that is really good at reputational management a crisis management will be able to step in and say that's not how we're going to do it. This is what you need. This is how we need to have everything in place. 
that is the kind of response that you're going to give if you've ever find yourself at the heart of a storm and the eye of a storm of any kind of story and they manage it for you and what they're doing is they're limiting any long-term damage to the brand so if something appears for instance in print but it also appears online it's knowing the fact that actually the focus should not be about trying to get an apology for the print publication it should be focused always on getting the text changed so that it works better for you online because online once it's out there it's out there so you want that changed and it's understanding all of the this is how we should do it these are the steps that we should take and just being guided gently through the whole thing Yes, it's about having experts on your side. We, we could all try and do our own PR, but at the end of the day, it's, it's making sure you've got people on your team like you who actually know what they're doing. And, and I guess a lot of it is the relationships with, with press as well. You know, you've spent years and years in your career building up those relationships. So presumably that, that has a, a bit of an impact on the kind of results you can expect for your clients too. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I've worked in the media now for 25 plus years and but both as a journalist and a PR expert. And I think that's the big difference between myself and, and say someone who's just worked for an agency or has um, maybe been running their own business for a while. Because I've got both hats, I've got a foot in each camp. I understand what it is that journalists want, but I also understand what business owners want. So I know from both perspectives what actually works. And I've done a lot of reputational management. Um, I used to be the head of PR at Thorpe Park, and we had an awful lot of kind of crisis management and making sure that everything was working as it should do. I kept like a lot of the stuff out of the media as much as I was getting it in. And sometimes we forget that there is that element of PR. We also forget about things like SEO. So we kind of think, why on earth would you want to be featured on such and such a site? Well, if they've got really great search engine optimization, which means you're going to get more clicks, more people visiting that website, then and they provide you a link through to your business or what it is that you do, then you're much more likely to see a spike in your mm. traffic and the visitors to your website. So it's about really looking at things strategically and not just saying, that's a good idea or that's a good idea. You need to have it all planned out. Yeah, fantastic. So when it comes to picking the things that people are going to talk about with their PR, because this is a tricky one. You know, everyone has um, everyone has different stories that are part of their life, part of what makes them them. And, you know, for me, me for example, um, you know, when we had our chats about PR and all the, the stories I might want to talk about, I know for me there was a few that came up that were an immediate no. You know, for example, someone in the press might like the fact that I've been in £30,000 of debt before I started my business, but I am not the type of person that would ever want that splash on, you know, on, on papers or on press or promoting my business because it isn't, for me, it isn't part of how I want to present myself as a, as a business owner. And um, it doesn't feel aligned, I guess, with my sort of personal values and what I talk about in my business. So how would you recommend people kind of navigate that if they if they think, right, the only thing about me that's kind of story worthy is some hook that I don't really feel comfortable sharing? 
how can they start to explore and kind of mine for other stories and things that they, they might feel comfortable sharing? The first thing to say about when it comes to sharing your, your story is it is just that. It's your story. So you get to decide which parts go in and which parts don't go in. So you get to decide, OK, I don't want that part in. OK, and just like you said, like it's not going to work for you. So that's absolutely fine. But there'll be other parts that you are happy to share. And there might be angles that you think, well, that's not very interesting, but actually it will be of interest to a journalist. Right. And until you've actually sat down and explored all of that, you'll never know. Now, it could well be that you might need to find a bit of a compromise. Um, and in letting people in enough to see some of the things that you're happy to share, you might need to find a little bit of a compromise. You can't turn around and say, well, I'm not sharing anything about me at all because the brands that are, I would say, I would describe it as faceless. So you can't see the person behind the brand. That's not going to work. We all know that people buy from people. So if you're bringing out a brand and you're trying to go out there and talk about the virtues of the brand and how amazing the brand is and what it is that you're doing, but you are sitting in the background, that's never going to work. People want to know who is running this. Why are they doing it? What's the mission behind it? And how did that all start? Those are all kind of general questions that people will want to know. And more so now than ever before. We're living in a in a time of citizen journalism, where people are recording things on their phone, where they're seeing things all the time. They're naturally inquisitive about where you've come from and what it is that you've done or achieved or anything else. Now, if you don't want certain parts mentioned, you don't have to mention them. So rest assured, you absolutely can close the gate on certain things. It is down to you, though, when you speak to a journalist, not to get overexcited and then suddenly tell them. Because if you do that, it's fair game that it will end up in the public eye. You cannot give an interview, overshare, and then say, oh, by the way, you know that really great story I gave you? I'm really sorry that's not going to work. Because by that point they're well within their rights to just continue and say, I'm sorry, you, you said it, so I'm going to put it in. And I think that's where the fear comes, like you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think that's where the fear comes from for a lot of people around PR and about, around journalism and, and being interviewed is because they worry about saying, you know, all sorts of shit that just comes out, out in the moment. You know, they worry about the filter not being in place enough and accidentally revealing too much oversharing and it being on the record then so do you have a couple of tips for people you know if let's say someone's listening and they are going to be interviewed or they're meeting with a journalist they want to share their story and get their brand out there but they want to protect themselves do you have some kind of top tips around preparing for that interview and how to make sure you're protecting your own reputation and guarding those things that matter to you yeah definitely what I would always suggest is have three key messages it's always three because it's much, much easier to kind of remember. One of those should always be, where can you find me? So you can tell people to find you and always lead people to your website, not your special offer, not your course, not your podcast, whatever. Everything should go to your website. Your website should be like your shop window. And if you're doing something in particular, you should be shouting about it on the front page of that website. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing that you need to be doing is 
preparing in advance, knowing exactly what it is that you want to get from any interview. Now, I did this a couple of weeks ago. I was interviewed by a journalist from the Daily Express, lovely lady, um, one of the personal finance reporters. And she was looking for a case study of someone who had won an appeal uh, against their council tax banding. Well, I did that. Well, I did it 20 years ago and I pointed out to her, it was 20 years ago, but I did do this. But before I even did the interview, I thought about, well, how is this going to work for me in terms of, you know, running a communications agency and specializes in, you know, strategic storytelling and PR? Because on the, like on the outward, like looking at it, you might think, well, hang on a second, what's that got to do with anything? But what I did when I spoke to her was I said, when I was doing all of my research around the council tax ban, I was tenacious. I did an awful lot of research. And when I presented everything to the council, I presented it like a story. So it was presented with a start, a middle and an ending. And by doing it like that, of course, she quoted me on all of it. So now you've got, okay, so she does things as stories. She was researching and she never gave up. She just kept going. Well, hang on a second. They're all of my key messages. That's all the things that I would ever recommend to people whenever they're embarking on a journey with PR. So what actually happened was the piece when it came out and when I was speaking to the journalist, I said, oh, how are you going to introduce me in the piece? And she was like, oh, how would you like to be introduced? So I sent across how I'd like to be introduced. And she said, would you like a link through to your website? Yes, I would. Thank you very much. So what you end up with is saying exactly what I do with a link through to my website, plus all of those little clues that are kind of weaved in throughout. And what you end up with is a really great piece of PR that basically I use to show people that actually outwardly you might look at something and dismiss it as an opportunity, but you should never dismiss any opportunities because you can always make them work for you. And so awesome. I'm using it as a kind of teaching, a way to teach others that actually PR is very much accessible. Don't discount what you might think um, as a kind of, well, that's a bit spurious. So how's that going to work? You need to just really think strategically about how it is you're going to link what it is you do to something that might seem really random, but there's always a way to link it, always. Fantastic. Those are great tips. So on that point, actually, my, my next question was going to be, you're a journalist, you're a PR expert. Is there such a thing as bad press? I think there probably is. I think you've only got to look at examples like when Gerald Ratner went out there and stood up on stage and said, oh, you know, our products are a complete load of rubbish. And then complete own goal, you know, is asked by a, a tabloid photographer, could you just do this? Could you hold a, like, I don't know, whatever it was, and just be look like you're berating your own products? I mean, I'm not quite sure at what point that as a PR gaffe would not go down in history. I mean, of course it did. The share price tumbled. All of the stores um, went out of business. The business was ruined. You've got the CEO and the founder saying it's a load of rubbish and it's cheap. Well, 
you've got to really think. So if you have someone in your business that hasn't been media trained, if you haven't been media trained and you're really worried about, I might overshare, make a note. Do not talk about X, Y, Z and have that on a post-it note somewhere in front of you. Now, if you still overshare. Somewhere they can't still... see, presumably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But not just out of 10, most interviews are usually done either over the telephone or on Zoom nowadays. So you can put a post-it note right next to your camera saying, do not mention X, Y, Z. Now, that should stop you. But if it's not likely to stop you, at least your key messages are hopefully going to bring you back on track. And hopefully you're not going to complete a spectacular own goal. You really shouldn't be doing it. You do not want to become the story. And that was always part of the training that I had. It was very much as a PR, we were always told you never, ever want to become the story. And quite often you see like a spokesman said or a spokesman commented, it's usually the PR that is commenting or is told what to say. And you're always a little bit like, gosh, is this going to be taken out of context? But if you ask a journalist, what's the angle that you're taking on this story? Where are you coming from on this story? And then it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to take part. But if you've set out all of the kind of like the rules beforehand say you're telling your own personal story and it it becomes like quite a big thing for you to do always before you've even given the interview ask if it's possible to have a read back so a read back is where you would go to the journalist and the journalist would say to you okay I will either read back the quotes that you've given to me or I will read back the whole piece and then you can see how it all fits together. And if anything's inaccurate, you can turn around and say, actually, that's wrong. That piece is wrong. Could you please change that? You can't change the whole piece, obviously. You, mm. That's not the way that it works. It's called a third party endorsement of what it is that you do for a reason. They've got to have impartiality to be able to write what they need to write. But it's a safer way to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it would be interesting to sort of segue really into your story, because one of the things that I was just thinking about then as you're talking is how with the press, the journalism, often you provide an interview, provide a statement and have a discussion, but it sort of gets lifted, right? So it's not like this, which is a podcast, it's long form not going to be very or any editing <laughs> frankly you know this is this is going to go out what you see is what you get everything you say you can defend every argument you make you can contextualize that often isn't the case with journalism which is kind of why I love doing things like podcasts and having these long-form conversations because it gives people a chance to tell their whole story right I'd love to talk a bit more about your story. And I don't know if this is something you've shared in your own PR in the business, but it would be lovely to hear a bit more about your story of um, overcoming a huge fear to have success in your personal life and in your business. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you were really afraid of. So I grew up and I don't know, I have no idea where this came from. I have zero idea where this came from, but I have a thing called tocophobia, which is fear of childbirth. And I remember saying to my friend when I was about 15, 16, there is no way that I can give birth. And 
you know, at the time you're discussing it and everything else in the playground or mm-hmm. wherever you are. And she was like, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And didn't think much more of it. And then you go, you go through life and you're absolutely fine. And I was very career focused. Like, you know, when I was working in journalism, I was very much right by this time next year, I'm going to be working there. By this time next year, I'm going to be there. And after that, then I'm there. I knew exactly where I wanted to be. And pretty much I ticked off most of the places that I wanted to work at or where I wanted to be. And it was brilliant. And then I came to start thinking about maybe I do want to start a family. I'd always envisaged that I'd have children. I I guess I probably parked the tocophobia part just somewhere, somewhere in the recesses <laughs> of my mind. And then, of sure. course, when I was pregnant, I was 39 at the time and a little one had taken three years to turn up by this point. It was just like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? So to get pregnant was like an amazing thing in the first place. And so it was all very, very exciting. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, okay, now we have a bit of a problem here. It was kind of like that, boop, 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 like the alarm going off. And I said very early on to um, the midwife, once we knew that everything was okay um, and everything was going to run smoothly with the pregnancy, there's a problem. And she was like, okay, talk to me. I can't have a natural childbirth. I just can't do it. And I think everyone that came across me at that time, when they saw my face, they were just like, she can't do it. (laughs) She just can't do it. And my friends used to joke and just be like, she's too posh to push. She's too posh to push. And I was just like, seriously, you have no idea. So what they did was they sent me along to a psychologist at the hospital. And it, it was absolutely brilliant service in terms of there is a psychologist psychologist psychiatrist who sits there with you and determines like where you're at on the spectrum so I go in I see this lady and she was lovely and I sat down and within about 10 seconds I'm in floods of tears hyperventilating saying oh my god I can't do this I can't do this and she just sat there she looked at me and she went yeah I think it's probably safest that we don't go down this road so Basically, I agree with you. You need to have an you need to have a C-section. So it was all planned out, and there were, you know, various people I had to still convince along the way. But they finally agreed that I should have a, a C-section because my fear was so great. I remember the psychologist being brilliant. She said to me, "Come along to the hospital a few days before your date." And at that point, I think my husband didn't really get it. He was just like, okay, Nick's going to do this. But, you know, Nick normally does what Nick does. Um, And then he took one look at me and I was like rigidly just shaking when she took me up to the place where it was all due to happen. And like they were trying to, she was trying to show me, look, this is the room and there's nothing to be afraid of and everything's good. And, you know, you'll have a team of people around you. And I was just standing there going, oh, I can't do this. I don't know, I can do this. And um, I think at that point he realized, oh my gosh, this really is like quite a deep set fear. And he's known me for several years at this point, but he'd never seen me like that. And Mm -hmm. I think it was that point where he 
finally got it. Okay, this is a massive, massive deal. Um, even to the point where like actually on, on the day of the delivery and everything else, it was, it was just such a, a massive thing. But, you know, thankfully we got through it. And, you know, the end, like, you know, what came out of it at the end was mm. Jay and my son Jay and like amazing. And uh, would I go through it again? No, not in a million years. Um, I found pregnancy really difficult as well. Um, I'm mm. quite an active person, so I'm always here, there and everywhere. And I found it really difficult to slow down, um, but I did need to slow down. And I, I just found it very stressful um, just being pregnant and not being able to walk up a flight of stairs without puffing and panting because of the position of Jay while he was inside me. So it was kind of, for me, I was just really glad to get over that whole stage. Yeah. My goodness. That sounds incredibly traumatic. <laughs> but once he was here, you know, yeah. the best thing that ever happened. And I always yeah. say that my... I think that my life actually began the day that he was born. And that sounds like really dramatic way to put it, because I do feel like up until that point, I've been kind of letting life pass me by. And I think it's very easy for all of us to do this. Um, you know, we're busy. We've got a job or we've got a we're running a business or we're doing whatever we're doing. And we don't ever stop to imagine what else is possible for us? What else could we be achieving? And what dreams could we actually be making come true? And I think up until that point, I'd very much been focusing on, yes, I'm doing a good job in my career. Yes, I'm doing this. I'm a, you know, a great wife. I'm like, you know, all of the rest of it. But I was allowing life to just happen. I wasn't actually saying, hang on a second, what if I do this? And hang on a second, what's happened to that little girl that when she was six and she sat down and wrote her first ever story and fell in love with storytelling? How is she now writing stories? How is she taking that storytelling and being able to go on and impact other people's lives? Yeah. And so when he came along and he was there and I read to him from a very, very early age and I could see the impact that reading stories had on him, his face, it used to just light up. The And he was very early on, he was turning the pages of the book. He might not have understood what was actually the words or anything else, but he loved the pictures and the delight on his face. That's what led me to start writing children's books. Because I just thought, if you can reach people through the power of storytelling from a really young age, then you can engage them for the rest of their lives. So they fall in love with words, so they fall in love with books and storytelling and reading. That's a, that's a real gift to pass on. Yeah, so that's that. why I went down the road that I did. And that's why mm. I help people tell their own stories now, because our own stories are the most powerful thing. They're like our superpowers. So if I can help people be able to tell those or get them out there on a much bigger scale, then now I'm not just letting life pass me by. I'm being able to help others 
make more of an impact. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you said about, you know, because not obviously not everyone's going to have children, that that kind of um, finding childlike wonder and you know reclaiming your childhood dreams isn't going to be for everyone. But I love the idea that at any point we could decide to kind of re-examine that and, you know, try and try and take that moment to be really conscious of actually what am I doing? What decisions am I making? How is that affecting the rest of my life? Because I think it's so, so common to get caught up in the daily grind. Like we all do it all the time. You know, we especially as business owners you get so busy and you just get so caught up in just the the rat race of it all so the idea that you kind of something forces you in your case but you know in lots of people's cases maybe it's about just that kind of myth message to take away of taking that moment to reflect on actually like what did you want to be when you were little <laughs> what did you you know what what did you want your life to look like and what do you want it to look like still because again we I think a lot of us and I'm 32 but I still feel even at a relatively young age, like a lot of doors have been closed. And I think that a lot of that's in our mind. We get this idea that we are who we are now and we're stuck in it. So I just love the, the kind of reclamation of childhood, like wonder and dreaming and storytelling. I think that's, it's a lovely idea. And just finding the way that you can reignite that imagination, because like mm. when you're a child, you just everything's possible right everything is like you want to be a princess or you want to do this or you want to do that so why when we become adults do we actually block off things and say no the practicalities are that you have to do this this and this why why do that you know if you um love taking long walks in the country do that if that's going to inspire you I find that music really inspires me as well and just losing yourself in music or movies or you know something that is going to really light you up and I always always it doesn't matter whether you've got children or otherwise I always recommend go and reread the books that you read as a child so you can remember who you were back then, because that will click something into place and you'll be like, hang on a second. Yeah. I always wanted to do that. Why aren't I doing that? And then you start realizing there's a really lovely quote that's my favorite ever quote. It's by Audrey Hepburn. And it says, there's no such word as impossible. The word says it itself, I'm possible and that's it we are possible we've just got to step out of our own way and the kind of saying what if this happens and what if that happens and but actually what if your dreams become a reality and what if you're able to change other people's lives even one person's life as a result of you changing your path yeah, I love that. I was literally having a conversation with someone about this earlier this week and um I was I was asked the question like what what does your dream life look like? Because I was struggling for motivation, to be honest. Like, I, I think it gets like that sometimes. You work so hard that you sort of forget why you're working. And, um, and so you and I were in Malta recently together on a retreat. And it's a great opportunity to kind of reflect on this stuff. And my friend asked me the day, like, what, what is it you want your life to look like in five or ten years? And I have always found that question so difficult. I, I, it's part of the reason I left the corporate world because they kept 
asking, you know, where do you want to be in a year? Where do you want to be in five years? And I always just made, made shit up because I had no idea. I was like, I don't know, manager? What, <laughs> what are you supposed to say? And, and the other day he said, just, you know, what, close your eyes and imagine what your life looks like. And I found that really, really hard. And I, I think that's so sad. Like, it's sad that the older we get, we can't kind of picture that reality. You know, when we're a kid, however unrealistic, however unathletic we are, we can decide we want to be an Olympic athlete. And however, um, you know, not American we are, we want to be president of America, <laughs> whatever. Like you think everything's possible. But I think um, that sort of imagination, that capacity to, to dream big does get closed off. And taking a moment to just really sit with that and the answer in the end for me was freedom, like that, that feeling of being on a plane and looking at the clouds and having freedom to do whatever I want and go wherever I want, all that kind of stuff. That's that's what it looks like. But I yeah, I love that idea that we kind of reconnect with that part of ourselves when we think about stories and, and children's literature. What was your favourite book as a child? Oh, gosh, I used to love reading. I remember reading a lot of Agatha Christie. Um, but I also used to love the fairy tales, like the real classics. I used to love um, Snow White and Snow Red um, and or Rose Red. I think it was Rose Red and Snow yeah. White. And like just imagining because they turned like they had the rose bushes. And I used to love like just imagining that I was Rose Red. I never wanted to be like the perfect princess at all. I always wanted to be the one that was just that slightly edgy, slightly different <laughs> one on the outskirts. I just, I never wanted to be that perfect kind of, you know, ideal kind of princess. But mm. I think for me, it was just about being able to just, I don't know, just imagine more. Like I yeah. used to love fame. That was yeah. around a lot of the time. When I was growing up, it was all about fame and the series. And I wanted to be the Coco. I wanted to be the character played by Irene Cara um, because she was just the best dancer, the best singer. And, you know, you wanted to be having that amount of fun that you would go out on a New York street and you would just yeah. dance and jam and, you know, and Bruno would be playing the piano and all of those kind of things. But it, <laughs> it's those kind of things that really light you up and just make yeah. you really happy. And so for me, music has always been a big part of that. Dancing has always been a big part of that. And I think just reconnect with yourself. And something I did want to say to you as well is the picture that you used in the end when you realized what your vision of where you want to be like that freedom that you want to head towards you need to print that picture off and have it in front of you <laughs> you see it every single day because then that's yeah. something you look at so that it becomes part of your Not reality me, so it's yes exactly <laughs> that and it just yeah. becomes this big thing for you I love that's them. what you go for. <laughs> Fame reference. I was reading uh, Rain Wilson's book, The Bassoon King, the other day. He's uh, the guy who plays Dwight in the office, in the US office. And uh, he was talking about the film Fame and he said that it changed his life. It was when he decided he had no other option than to become an actor because he saw the passion, the drive, the dreams on the screen. And he made this uh, joke about how one of the worst film adaptations ever of a musical was the thing that changed his life. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was great. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> but yeah, I think my favorite book story is the Ina Blyton 
ones. I used to love listening to those in the car with my dad and uh, driving to, I guess, all the school clubs and stuff. But I'd always listen to like the Famous Five and the, was it Secret Seven? it's not about losing that do you know so, yeah. so those memories like you need to at some point find <laughs> those and have them downloaded so you can listen yeah. to them again when you're on journeys because that'll bring back so many happy mm. memories for you in terms of kind of you know where you were as that child um, and I think that it's just so important Oh, Nicola, it's been so lovely having you on. I want to talk briefly before we finish up about what is going on in your business at the moment, because you've got key three messages, three key messages rather to talk to tell us about. So where can people find you? <laughs> so you can find me at um, over on Instagram. I'm at Nicola J. Rowley PR. Mm-hmm. I have a free Facebook group called the communications community so come on in and say hello um, my website is uh, www.njrpr.com and I have a free four-day challenge from incognito to interviewed PR challenge um, coming up we start on Monday the 17th of October at 10 a.m BST uh, right through to Thursday the 20th of October. And what we're going to be doing is really like a lot of what we've been talking about. We're going to work on your messaging. We're going to work on your confidence. And confidence is a really big thing that holds people back from getting started with PR to feeling comfortable in terms of putting themselves out there. We're going to explore a little bit of storytelling. So you're going to get a lot of clarity and confidence and just feeling like, okay, I understand a bit more about how PR can help me. It can help my business. It can help other people. Because actually, when we look at PR, it's not about us. It's about the people that we can help. And once people know how it is you can help them, then they can come to you. But if you don't tell them, you become a hidden secret. And as we were discussing at the start of this, you can't afford to be a hidden secret right now. You have to be seen. Um, so there's also going to be a storytelling masterclass that will take place on Monday, the 24th of October at 8 p.m. BST. Um, and would love for any of your audience to join us. Absolutely. I'll make sure I share the links below this podcast, wherever you're listening to it. Do make sure if you can get yourself signed up for that free challenge because Nicola delivers so much value inside these challenges. And I know she's going to really help you kind of separate the, I guess, the wood from the trees a little bit when it comes to VR, because I think a lot of people do have fear surrounding it. And there is absolutely no one that I would trust to to kind of support and guide you on this journey more than Nicholas so do make sure you get yourself signed up via the link below this podcast if you're listening to it on Spotify or on my website it will be there Nicola before we go I would love to ask you a question that I'm going to ask all of my podcast uh, interviewees the future choice words is the idea of this podcast is to help people feel like they're not alone when they're running their business because as we know it can be a weird lonely <laughs> old world out there for entrepreneurs at times and it's not all glamour and we see the highlight reel a lot online so what piece of advice would you give yourself when you first started your business if you could go back what's one thing you'd like to tell yourself about running a business that might help others Surround yourself 
with like-minded people, people that are going to lift you up, people that are going to believe in you and people that are going to celebrate you and share your dreams with you. You may well be when you're starting out that your friends, your family, who you've previously relied on to do this, they won't necessarily understand what on earth you're doing. They won't understand where it is that you want to get to with this. And it can feel, as a result, a very lonely place. So find your tribe, find the people that are gonna lift you up and just stay with them because the more that you do, the more that they can come on that roller coaster ride with you and you're not going on it alone because otherwise it can feel like an incredibly lonely place. There are some amazing people in the online space, in the offline space as well, but just make sure that you've got a few people that you would trust around you so that you can become that best possible version of yourself and you know there really is no reason why if you've got a dream and you put in the work and you head for it and you believe in yourself that you can't make it a reality a very inspiring note to end on and thank you Nicola I couldn't agree more and I consider myself very lucky to have you as one of those people in my life so thank you for coming on today and um, thank you very much for being here Everyone, thanks for joining us. This has been A Few Choice Words with Chantal Davison and Nicola Rowley.